year, some 600,000 Americans, a number roughly equivalent to the population of Memphis, Tennessee, return from incarceration. About half of those people will be rearrested and imprisoned for new offenses, a dynamic that often causes chaotic and dangerous situations in heavily impacted communities and neighborhoods. For decades, policymakers have struggled with the challenges of reentry and recidivism. In 1980, a seminal study of recidivism by Robert Martinson concluded that when it came to preventing post-incarceration crime, quote, nothing works. Today, recidivism remains high, and the challenges facing those returning from prison have, if anything, gotten even greater. My guest today is Jeremy Travis, Executive Vice President for Criminal Justice at Arnold Ventures, a major philanthropic foundation dedicated to understanding and expanding the use of evidence-based practices in public policy. His wide-ranging career includes stints with then-New York City Mayor Ed Koch, the Vera Institute of Justice, and a senior leadership position at the U.S. Department of Justice. In the mid-2000s, he was instrumental in guiding the passage of the Bipartisan Second Chance Act that was signed into law by President George W. Bush. He was also intimately involved in the more recent First Step Act, which reforms federal sentencing and prison policies, and was signed by President Trump at the end of 2018. Throughout his career, Jeremy's research and advocacy has focused on some of the key questions shaping American criminal justice systems. How can reentry help us build safer communities? How can policy create a better framework and process to prevent a quick return to incarceration? How can policy protect the dignity of victims and perpetrators in a way that brings justice, security, and healing for individuals, families, and communities? rather than working in ways that deepen the wounds and alienation caused by criminal behavior. My conversation with Jeremy is the first in a series of episodes marking National Criminal Justice Month and will help us frame a number of the themes we'll be considering in future installments. Jeremy Travis, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it really is great to have you here. I have certainly followed a lot of your work over the years, and we've had some uh, chances to work together in the past. So uh, I don't think there's anybody that I know of who knows as much about criminal justice reform as you do. And um, it's a real area of interest and passion for me as well. So our team has been really uh, excited about this interview because uh, of of that of that relationship and especially, um, you know, your, your contributions to this field. I wonder if we could start though, if you could just talk us through a little bit about your own personal background. Um, you've, you've, uh, you've had a, a storied career, um, in, uh, criminal justice reform, both in, in Washington and New York. Uh, and I think it would be interesting for people to hear a little bit about how you got there. It is a, it's an interesting story in the sense that I'd never planned to be in criminal justice. Didn't, didn't think this would be my life's work when I was a young man or when I was in college or when I was looking for my first job. I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts, found my way uh, to Yale, which was a great privilege, um, and uh, graduated, spent another year uh, at, in New Haven, and then came to New York unemployed and looking for work and just through uh, connections found a job opening as a paralegal at the Legal Aid Society working in the criminal division in the uh, in the South Bronx and I needed a job there was a job and I started doing it and haven't uh, really gone off track since then in terms of that interest in criminal justice although I've you know, gone to graduate school and gone to law school and moved around a lot uh, but that was totally fortuitous it was uh, accidental and I am so glad that accident happened you know, that's, uh, I hope that people listen very carefully to that because I think that's a consistent theme. Certainly was true in my life. I've heard it from many others. You, you, you get started doing something and you find a passion for that subject matter rather than starting with your, what you think your passion is and moving directly into a career in that area. So uh, I, that in itself is a, a lesson worth learning. Um, so uh, uh, how did you, how did you decide that Yale was something that a person like you could do go to, going to Yale? I grew up, as I said, in a small town in Massachusetts where most of the people in my high school uh, did not go to Yale or 
in many cases, even to college. Um, but I was sort of restless. I was one of six kids, uh, and all of us left our small town. We were uh, that type of family. And my restlessness brought me to apply to uh, the American Field Service uh, to be an exchange student. So I spent my senior year of high school in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't speak German, but went to high school and learned German and uh, had this experience of being outside of my country, outside of my culture, outside of my comfort zone. And that uh, encouraged me to uh, think beyond uh, the town I grew up in uh, and applied to Yale. And uh, I certainly knew of Yale. I visited there before I left on this trip and uh, had my interview for admission to Yale in the American embassy in Bonn. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still convinced to this day that that sort of made me different from other people applying. But I, yeah, I was a public high school kid. And uh, Yale at that time was still, although it was transitioning, a place where you went to, uh, if you were either a legacy student, uh, your father went there, uh, or you came out of prep school. And I was the member of the last all-male class in Yale. Uh, and it was changing rapidly. It was in the late 60s when the world was changing. And so I had a front row seat at Yale uh, that put me in the middle of social turmoil. It was the anti-war movement that I was uh, sort of tangentially involved in, but very committed to. It was the civil rights movement. There was the Black Panther trial going on in New Haven. Uh, I was very close to Reverend William Sloan Coffin, who was indicted for a conspiracy for his anti-war activities. Uh, it was the start of the uh, the feminist movement. It was the just the inklings of what we would call gay rights movement. So all of this stuff was happening at Yale while I was getting an education, but that was the education that I got. Uh, And I decided at that time uh, to create with others a a major in African-American studies because I was fascinated then and continue to be fascinated with uh, the the history of of, uh, black history in in our country. It's a way of understanding Mm. America as a white man to understand America. So Yale was really formative in so many ways, and I feel still to this day very lucky to be there. Well, uh, and what was your undergrad major? It was it was American studies, but within that, a, a group of my classmates and I uh, asked permission to declare an interdisciplinary major uh, at the time it was called Black Studies uh, because we were all interested. There was two of my black classmates and two of my white, and I was one of two white classmates who um, who went to the dean to ask for this permission. And so I ended up studying uh, a variety of topics with art and music, uh, but I became, in, in essence, a amateur historian mm-hmm. and wrote my senior thesis on uh, 19th century uh, black intellectual history. Um, and still, and my favorite decade is the 1850s, uh, just because there's so much going on in the country. Yeah, and so I, yeah. I did a deep dive into that decade uh, by studying uh, that decade through the eyes of uh, Frederick Douglass and Martin Robinson Delaney. So. Uh, that that helped me sort of think deeply about about uh, race issues in our country and the the state of our democracy, uh, which uh, you know in interesting ways uh, brings me uh, to where where I am today. I'm still thinking about race, still thinking about our democracy, but in this case, thinking about it through the, the lens of criminal justice. Wow. Okay, so you graduate, and then where'd you go? And uh, you were I'm sorry, you were in the you were you were you got this paralegal. Uh, experience. Right. So, and then you went uh, went back to school after that. No, no, no. no. Well, yes, but uh, so I was a paralegal at the Legal Aid Society for two years, working mostly in the South Bronx, which brought me, you know, right in touch with the operations of the criminal justice system at the at the uh, at the front line. You know, I worked in the arraignment court. I helped the uh, legal aid lawyers who defended people coming into that court. The South Bronx was uh, mostly uh, Hispanic at the time, but it was clearly a place where poverty and the law and the police all came uh, into collision with each other. So uh, that was another learning experience. And from there, I went to Vera. I went to the Vera Institute Mm -hmm. of Justice uh, and worked at what was uh, the Pretrial Services Agency, which was funded by, and I'll date you and me here, by the Law Enforcement (laughs) Assistance Administration to bring Vera to do work on bail reform because there had been a, uh, a riot in the tombs uh, a couple of years before that. And uh, the city called in Vera to come back in and do some work to try to reduce uh, pretrial detention. And I worked at the uh, Pretrial Services Agency at Vera and then the Victim Witness Assistance Project at Vera 
also uh, federally funded. And then uh, back to pretrial issues at the Criminal Justice Agency. So all told six years at Vera, mm. a master's degree at night at the same time. But being in this environment at Vera, which is a, if people know it, it's, it's I think, the premier R&D shop in our field. It's a research-oriented, but trying ideas, rigorous uh, evaluations of what, of what works, working closely with government, but a lot of attention to uh, the people coming through the system and the communities from which they come. So Vera was like a graduate school for me. It was, uh, uh, and I still... Uh, really value my my time there, uh, and then uh, then I dropped out and went to law school. Uh, when nine years after leaving Yale. Well, I wouldn't call that dropping out, but uh, <laughs> I, I I see what you're saying. Uh, so uh, and and sorry, you went to Yale for law school, sir. No, just, I, no. I went to uh, NYU for law school. NYU, very good law uh, school. Policy degree at, at what's now called the Wagner School, and then went to NYU for law school. Mm. And that was another uh, just very great educational experience. And and what was your then what was your pathway into sort of the federal policymaking sphere? After I graduated from NYU, uh, I applied for a clerkship, and uh, that clerkship brought me to Washington. And I clerked for a judge who now uh, is known by her initials, RBG, and known by the uh, mm. moniker Notorious. Uh, so I clerked for uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was on the Court of Appeals, not on the Supreme Court, uh, I think her third year as, as a judge. And uh, at, that, at the end of that one-year clerkship, had a decision to make whether to go practice law or, or do something else, and whether to stay in Washington or return to New York, which I uh, consider home. And I had this uh, opportunity to return to NYU Law School on a, in essence, sort of a postdoc, a fellowship. To, uh, to do research and to do some writing uh, in the uh, uh, what, what is still present. It's called, this was the first year of the Institute for uh, Crime and Justice Research at, uh, at NYU Law School, another one-year stint, and was considering at that time whether to go into law teaching, which I, was, uh, I found very appealing. Uh, and then another life event happened when... Uh, somebody who became a very important force in my life, uh, Benjamin Ward, was named police commissioner by Mayor Koch. I had worked for uh, Ben Ward. I, I will always call him commissioner. Commissioner Ward, when he was at Vera, and I was his special assistant, so I was very close to him. He was, he was named police commissioner, first black police commissioner in New York at a time when, again, uh, race was front and center. The Conyers Committee had held hearings on racism within the NYPD, it was a very uh, contentious time in New York, and uh, Commissioner Ward was appointed commissioner in part to respond to those issues. And he asked me whether I would join him as his special counsel, sort of work right alongside him. And uh, the idea of becoming a law professor went out the window. The opportunity to be at the right hand of a reform-minded uh, uh, law enforcement executive at this time in my city's history was just a remarkable opportunity. So I took it and uh, worked for him for two years and then uh, moved over to City Hall and was special advisor to Mayor Koch for three years at the end of his third term. Uh, and then, uh, and that's when I went back to Washington uh, for a short time uh, to serve as chief counsel to the House Subcommittee on Criminal Justice for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chuck Schumer, who's then a member of Congress. So those opportunities in New York, in in policing, in city government, uh, you know, again, you know, front row seat. Uh, some of the crises of, of of urban life and trying to make things better and watching reform, watching politics up close. Uh, again, I, I feel like I've had all of these opportunities to go to go to school. So I was once again learning from those uh, opportunities to be very close to the action. Well, that is, uh, that's, that's an amazing pathway. I know you did uh, some time in the Clinton administration and did some very significant work there. And then you, you sort of became, at least from my perspective, I was in the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, working on reentry issues at the Department of Labor. And uh, you were really at the sort of the center of a whole network of organizations and and trying to get the Second Chance Act through. Um, what was that? What was that experience? 
So, so let me just uh, connect the dots for a moment, if I could. Sure. Fred. Uh, so going back to the time with Schumer, I did another U-turn and came back to New York to work for Lee Brown, who was also the police commissioner, uh, second black police commissioner in New York as his chief counsel. And then Clinton was elected. Mm. And uh, I was uh, invited to uh, put my name in to be the NIJ director in the Clinton administration. So just to position this. NIJ is the National Institute of Justice, right? The NIJ, uh, the National Institute of Justice, the research arm of the Justice Department, Janet Reno brought together just a remarkable team of uh, people from around the country. Uh, Lori Robinson, Shay Bilchik, Nancy Gist, Shay Janet Chaikin, Joe Brand at the COPS office. Uh, I was NIJ director. And it was really just this um, powerhouse uh, brain trust working for, I think in, in my experience at least, the attorney general who had the most direct experience of working at the local level because she'd been a state's attorney in Dade County. And uh, she brought that perspective to working with us. And it was the time of the Crime Act. So the Crime Act brought a lot of uh, federal funding into all of these agencies, and in particular to the National Institute of Justice, because the Congress had provided uh, funding off the top of all of the Crime Act funding to come to NIJ for research. So we were, we were the beneficiaries of this legislative decision to say that if we're going to fund something in, in crime policy, we should also fund research about the things that we just made possible. So the COPS program, the uh, uh, truth and sentencing program, the drug courts, all of those had research strategies that were made possible by federal uh, investments. So in terms of what we, what we were learning from the federal government through research, it was an unprecedented explosion of um, funding for research on the topics facing the country. So, so this is I, this is the you're talking about the 1996 crime bill, is that right? Ninety four crime bill. Ninety four right. crime bill. Okay. So you were deeply involved. It sounds like you're pretty deeply involved. I'm curious as well while, while you were working on that, um, what you thought about sort of the provisions that Congress included in that bill that subsequently became by sort of common telling the problem of over-incarceration. What was the internal discussion like? So the, the 94 Crime Act, as it was passed, was a uh, compromise between Republicans and Democrats. Some portions of it were advanced by uh, either the Democrat, I'm sorry, some portions of it were advanced by Democrats in, in the Congress or by the Clinton administration, others by Republicans that became a, a mix of, of provisions. Some of them I supported as a policy matter, I'm a big fan of community policing, drug courts. I also uh, favor the Violence Against Women Act. I think is very important. Certainly, some of the the work on uh, on Brady and other other gun violence issues. Uh, others I didn't. If I had been asked to vote for them in Congress, I would not have uh, supported mm. them. Uh, and the one that you mentioned, Brent, is really important because I think it's been misunderstood and has been mischaracterized. And that was the uh, the Truth and Sentencing. Has a longer title, the Violent Offender Incarceration Truth and Sentencing uh, Provision of the Crime Act, that created an incentive for states to lengthen the prison terms of people that were sentenced in those states by changing the date of eligibility for parole to being later than it would have been in the original legislative scheme of that state, so that people would be held in prison longer. So that provision is, I think, as a research matter, what we know from the research is that making long sentences longer does not provide any safety benefit. So if it was sold to the public as being something that would reduce crime, uh, that was a, uh, a misrepresentation of its benefits. But it was also not, and this is where I disagree with my uh, progressive uh, colleagues, it was not the factor, and it was not even a major factor in creating mass incarceration. So you know that uh, later in my life, I chaired the National Academy of Sciences panel on understanding the causes and consequences of uh, high rates of incarceration in America. And the clear you know, so, this narrative from that work is that the ramp up of incarceration started in the 70s, accelerated in the 80s. And this provision of the 94 Crime Act, yes, it added in a small number of states, maybe half of them, where that provision was 
what took effect. It added some prison beds, added some to the incarceration populations, but it was not the driver. It was not the driver of mass incarceration. So that's a misreading of history. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into what you what you think was the main driver, hopefully a little bit later. So you, you worked on that, um, and then then you finally got to teach. It looks like that was your next step. Well, we have to talk about reentry, Brent. We can't. Oh yes, of course, yes. <laughs> so uh, so when I was at NIJ, one of the things that we funded was an executive session on sentencing the corrections at the University of Minnesota, and this brought together a couple dozen or so scholars and practitioners uh, to talk about sensing corrections and what's, what should be the future of policy uh, on those two topics. And out of that discussion, uh, I produced a paper, uh, an article that was subsequently published uh, that had the title, uh, But They All Come Back, uh, Reconsidering Prisoner Reentry. And that became a book that became uh, a major chapter of my life later. But when I was at NIJ, and I discussed that uh, with uh, the Attorney General. Uh, Ms. Reno said, let's do something about this idea of reentry. Because she had asked the question of me and Laurie Robinson, the Assistant Attorney General, in a very uh, so quiet moment after another meeting, she'd asked both of us, what are we doing as a country about all the people coming out of prison? And uh, the answer at the time was, uh, I don't know. The answer for me was, Ms. Reno, I don't know. I'll get back to you. Uh, and then I started this this deeper dive into the question of, of reentry. We published that paper. We uh, started uh, funding uh, reentry courts. Uh, we looked at uh, partnerships to promote successful reentry. The word reentry uh, became a, a, a buzzword uh, in our field. And when I left NIJ, as the administration was coming to an end, uh, I went to the Urban Institute, and I went there because the Urban Institute wanted to support me and a, a small team that I brought uh, into the Institute to work on this issue. So you and I met when uh, the uh, the administration changed, uh, the George W. Bush administration uh, took over, and thankfully, uh, that administration, in slightly different ways from uh, what might have happened had Gore taken office, Continued the work on reentry. So here we had a national bipartisan, and I think in some ways, maybe you would disagree, Brent, one of the, one of the first major bipartisan supports for justice reform around reentry with what the Bush administration was doing, what we had started in the Clinton years. And I was fortunate enough to be at Urban with my colleagues there as we built out a portfolio of work on, on reentry. So it became a very um, uh, exciting really electric, intellectually electric and challenging group of people uh, and topic uh, at that time. And it's 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 continued to generate uh, interest. And I know certainly you've uh, yeah. done scholarly work on it. Uh, but that that was the the origin is the and, and the important moment is that transition mm. from uh, Clinton uh, to Bush, where the Bush administration said we were going to embrace this. And then four years later, uh, President Bush in his uh, State of the Union address, uh, 2004, I still remember vividly hearing this uh, when I was <laughs> sitting on my couch, said uh, something about... Uh, uh, I, I have a story. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, well, I, it, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I was at the Labor Department and I was working on the faith and community-based initiative. That was right. my that was my role there. And 9-11 happened. And so, you know, everybody was upside down and not knowing, you know, what what anything meant anymore in terms of the domestic initiatives of the administration. And I just I just used it as an opportunity to get on an airplane and start traveling and speaking with and to community groups around the country to get a sense for what was really going on, you know, what was on their minds. And reentry came up over and over and over. You could not. You could not walk into an inner city church or an inner city community organization and not have people talking about this challenge. And the thing, the other thing that came up in that is that we've got to do something about employment. Employment was this issue. If we just had more access to employment, maybe we could do something about reentry. And I said, well, Republican Party, we ought to be able to talk to business about this issue. We did a bunch of work around that and did some focus groups and 
try to get a better handle on, you know, what would make it easier for businesses to think about this. And, and then Emily Duraco, Duraco, who was the assistant secretary for employment and training at ETA partnered with me to come up with some money to try to do something with it. And, and we created a little pilot program with Fred Daviot, uh, public private ventures. And then right about 2004, the same period you're talking about, I was having conversations with people at OMB, you know, let's can't, can't end with Jim Tuohy at the White House faith-based office. Can't we put something into the state of the union on reentry? And we worked it and we worked it. And I too was not sure until I heard the words coming out of the president's mouth, uh, that it would make it into the address into the State of the Union address in 2004. It did. And I'll never forget looking at the expressions on the faces of the Republican members and the Democrats. Uh, you know, like we've got a Republican president talking about crime and something other than, uh, you know, we have to get tough. We have to lock them up. You know, it was a, it was a different kind of message of they're coming home as you're, you know, you're paper pointed out that they're mostly coming home and uh and we should we should have an opportunity to see if we can do a better job of keeping them from going back into prison and those kind of befuddled expressions on the faces of the members uh it was really quite a moment um and i think i don't know what you think about this but i've always felt like that was the turning point uh in in for the second chance act i think it uh with Bush on board and Republican members wanting to be supportive, I think it opened up the legislative process um, moving forward after that for, for a second chance. So I have to tell you, I am thrilled that we're having this conversation <laughs> because Brett, I've, I've tried to, tr I've tried, you know, not diligently enough to trace back the origin of that portion of the state of the union address. Yeah. I heard it came from the faith office. Yeah, I didn't know. You know I didn't yeah. attach a name to that. But so you think the Republicans were 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 stunned? Yeah, I, I think they were very surprised. Man. Imagine just... how the Democrats felt with that coming out of <laughs> out of a Republican president's mouth. Yes, and it yeah. did. It opened up because I was also I think you know this part of a group that convened after that uh, with Rob Portman's people to sort of think mm -hmm. about what the language would look like. But it opened up that conversation. But now what? How does this become a legislative um, uh, authorizing language, basically, that to this day still exists? And I think I think Second Chance passed. Is it was it unanimous in both houses? I think so. Yeah, or close to it anyway. Yeah. So so let's let's just note that moment. Yeah. As being a marker on criminal justice policy, and uh, and you know, grateful to the people who made it happen yeah. because that. You know, money flowed, but more importantly, it changed some of the discourse yeah. about crime policy and about people in prison. That's mm -hmm. that was humanizing people in prison was always the goal here, uh, but also helped people who ran prisons to think about their their public mission as being more than custody and control. It was also preparation for that inevitable return home. Right. So that language gave us a, a jumping off point. Uh, for uh, some some great policy discussions uh, with uh, people who are concerned about uh, program program life inside prisons, people who are concerned about the return home, and for the folks that you had talked to in uh, neighborhoods and uh, inner city churches and the business group, gave a way of grounding all of this in community. Yeah. Because what I did, uh, you know, speaking about reentry. And I want to be uh, sort of get people thinking. I'd say, okay, they're all coming back. Ninety-five percent of people in prison all return home. You have a loved one. How would you like that person to return home? What preparation would you want that person to have? How would you like to be in touch with them before they return home? What would you like their mindset to be? Their skill set? Their 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 health plan? Their imagine if they're coming from a hospital. What's the discharge plan? When you can humanize that mm -hmm. that phenomenon, which was at that time 700,000 people a year leaving state and federal prison and 12 million people leaving jails, you can humanize it, then things are possible in terms of, of policy change. So that moment in his State of the Union address uh, was absolutely, as you said, a pivotal moment in the reentry movement. 
Yeah, no, I, I that that's always how I perceived it. I, I I know that there were other people working and doing things, but that really felt like to me this moment at which, you know, we we took a big obstacle out of the way because we it it transformed the conversation from one that really gets stuck uh, around punishment into another conversation about you can't punish people forever. So what are you going to do um, uh, after after the punishment? So I, that really rings true to me as uh, and I'm glad you I'm glad you see it uh, the same way. We've never, you know, we've talked around this, but we've never yeah. talked actually about um, about that. But while we're on this topic of reentry back in the 80s, there was this very important study that came out that basically said nothing works you know nothing nothing works when you're trying to reduce criminal recidivism uh and then we've had some updated kind of research on this from um pam Lattimore and others who are looking at it and it doesn't feel to me like we've made much progress in spite of the, the conversation change but but are these programs actually are the reentry programs actually making a difference? Um, and so I wanted to hear you reflect on that just a little bit. We're still suffering the effects of the uh, Martinson article that you referred to, the, the nothing works idea, and it sort of hangs over our field sometimes as a uh, skepticism, cynicism, pessimism that we shouldn't try to you know help people who are uh, under criminal justice uh, supervision, and that's unfortunate. But there, there is a sort of empirical question behind that uh, that you uh, raised up, which is, what do we know about the effectiveness of various uh, programmatic interventions? I think people who do research in, in this area would uh, say, well, we've learned a lot uh, since uh, since that article was published. Uh, just a, noting the passing of Ed Latessa, uh, mm. uh, which is a, a loss to our field, but he and others have done a lot of research that is you know, rigorous and looks at uh, programmatic interventions uh, and finds that you you actually there are things that are effective and the, the question is how to sequence them how to at what point do you intervene all of that is helps develop a portfolio of programmatic interventions either in custody or when somebody leaves but i i would suggest that we're not asking the right question uh and that we're looking at the uh the question of success and failure too narrowly. It's defined as recidivism, which I think is too narrow a measure. And we're not really understanding the the effects of incarceration in terms of uh, what uh, are the damaging uh, effects of deprivation of liberty and loss of uh, autonomy uh, and the loss of community connection. And we also don't look at the available data on when failure happens, even if defined by recidivism, Failure happens more likely the closer you are to uh, release. So we don't we don't follow the data. We don't ask ourselves the question: How could we reduce failure? And here I'll use recidivism measure, rearrest measure, which I have lots of problems about, but it's it's a way to think about this by putting resources and at the time when failure is highest, when the risk of failure is highest, which is right after the prison door closes. If we did that, we'd think very differently about reentry. We'd think about uh, providing transitional housing. We think about providing trans transitional job support or job training. We think about for those people now who are, who are about to restore college education in prisons with the Pell refunding, we think about making that transition from college inside to college outside better. We think about failure of, uh, of uh, uh, people to find housing. Why do so many people end up in shelter? We think about tension within families when somebody comes home when you know, the the, uh, the person who's been the, the uh, breadwinner in the family, all of a sudden, typically the uh, the wife of the person who's incarcerated, all of a sudden somebody comes home and there's there's this extra demand. And how does that fit in, into the, the family dynamics? We think about the question of what works too strictly as a, I'll call it a medical model. What's the intervention that'll make a difference? Rather than thinking about it from the perspective of the lived experience of coming home from prison, if we did that and followed the data about failure and uh, looked at when failure is highest, and I don't mean just now we arrest failure, but we know that suicide is highest. We're getting shot when you return home and some 
you know, tension within your neighborhood is, erupts again. Uh, failure in terms of drug overdose. All the failures, indications of failures that matter are elevated in those first 30, 60, 90 days. And we, to, to think that what will fix those, quote unquote, fix is an intervention, is a program as opposed to supporting that journey and being very attentive to what's needed and bringing supports that are more likely to be supports from family and community and and uh, mentors, people who are formerly incarcerated, people who know the journey, think about it differently. You know, Brent, one of, one of my favorite programs is uh, the uh, Fortune Society here in, uh, in New York, which has residential housing. Uh, they have two you know, beautiful facilities in upper Manhattan for anybody coming out of prison. Uh, can live there as long as they need to to get their feet on the ground. It's a support system. They help, you know, with the obvious things like jobs and the like. But it's a support system. So we don't think about supports. We think about programmatic interventions, which is a very narrow way to think about uh, how to promote success. So let, let, let's stay on this just for a, a quick second more, which is, I mean, you... Arnold Ventures, where you work now, uh, was very generous supporting a working group that, you know, bipartisan working group that AEI put together on reentry. And um, one of the things that for me that came out of the, all of that conversation was that we're not actually focusing enough on developing, um, helping, helping people who are in prison or have been in prison develop more of a sense of kind of locus of control over their own lives. You know, this not enough focus on kind of personal agency, which it shouldn't surprise us that if you take someone who has, I always tell people that like, when you send somebody to jail, it's usually like the last intervention in a long series of interventions that was trying to avert that outcome uh, from Head Start through, um, you know, juvenile justice diversion. There's been a whole bunch of people. This is and this kind of has the effect of, you know, interrupting or not at least not supporting this develop this idea of developing agency control over your own life. And then you take that person who then commits a crime, you put them in prison. That's the most structured possible environment that there is. You know, again, you're, it can't help that person to develop that sense of control when every single decision in their lives is now directed by somebody else uh, while they're behind bars. Uh, and then you release them out of that experience and you're and you're surprised that they have trouble navigating the next step in their journey. That's literally insane, I think. But I'm curious what you think about you know, sort of approaches to help people sort of, again, regain that, that sense or, or gain, maybe gain for the first time that sense of agency and control over their own lives. I am totally with you on this uh, perspective. And uh, I took a look at, at your chapter of the Rethinking Reentry book and said, what maybe shouldn't surprise either of us that we were thinking like here. Yeah. So let's take a step back. As you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the Square One project at, uh, at Columbia Justice Lab, and, and we, we're developing new ideas. Maybe they're old ideas, but sort of thinking about, about uh, justice policy in new ways. And one of our areas of focus is uh, human dignity. And this this idea that the system just grinds people down. Right. From the moment you're arrested, when you stand in front of a judge and you have to look up at the person in a white in a black robe, uh, and you're you're separated from family, uh, and then think about prisons as being the ultimate place where human dignity is degraded. And you you mentioned uh, you don't get uh, to make decisions over your life. You don't. Uh, you don't have as, as, as much of a sort of a cognitive engagement uh, mm -hmm. with your environment because it's shut off. And to me, this is this is part of what it means to be a human. Then then I'm with you to say to say that somebody gets released and we expect them to be fully functioning is short sighted. You know, when I when I was doing uh, work on reentry, I was working on, on uh, the book uh, uh, that uh, came out of my work at, at Urban. I was highly influenced, and uh, maybe this has been important in your thinking also, by the by the work of Shad Maruna in his book Making Good. 
So Shad is a psychologist. He has studied the process of desistance. When do people sort of flip? When, when do they change identity? Mm. Uh, and you know, the desistance literature, I think, is more important to me than the uh, recidivism literature because it, it gets at that question of when does that shift happen? What is it? A, is it an external? Sometimes people, you know, the research that looks at uh, you decide to get a job, you decide to get married, some life event, or is it internal? Which Shad would mm. say, it sounds like you would say, which is a sense of I'm I'm going to be a different person from what I might have been in the past. Uh, sometimes that's a uh, experience that comes from a political awakening. I'm going to be engaged in uh, some cause. Maybe it's justice reform. We see a lot of that in our world these days, which is welcome. It could be a religious moment of uh, of connecting to something that's spiritual. It could be a family connection. You hear people in prison say, I don't want my son to look at me and think of somebody who was a robber uh, and I got convicted for that 10 years ago. I'm going to be somebody else. But Shad's research talks about that moment of, of as a psychologist, he talks about it as, as shedding, but not discarding an old identity mm-hmm. and adapting and building a new identity as being the moment of, uh, of important sort of uh, change in the trajectory. So if you then ask your question, which is, what do prisons do to mm-hmm. facilitate that process? Zero. Just the opposite. Yeah. Right? That's a different way of thinking about what prisons should be for but it really gets to this question of autonomy. How much autonomy yeah. can people have while they're incarcerated, you know, consistent with safety? How do we think about uh, work release, educational release, halfway houses, you know, hel- helping people make that what we mm-hmm. used to call, and we don't do it much anymore, but sort of the step-down adjustment yeah. from, from being in custody to being at liberty. Uh, so I, I, think we've, I think we've lost lost uh, sight of a very important human. Yeah, I've been talking about this with Sean Bushway, who you know well. One of the ideas that I've been toying with in my mind is, what if we set up as an experiment inside a prison where for, you know, you can't do this with everybody, but, you know, kind of a, we flooded the zone with opportunity, a variety of different opportunities for learning and for engagement so that people had you know, a choice to make. I don't want to do vocational ed. I want to do, I, I want to think about getting my bachelor's degree. I, I, I want to look at, you know, what would a career in healthcare be like, yeah. you know, for, so that people have, you know, one of the ways of identifying who might be ready to change is whether they can step forward into an opportunity, you know, and to say, this was, this is interesting to me. I want this. And I just keep coming back to this idea that, as you said, there's human dignity at stake. Well, human dignity always involves sort of tapping into people's deepest interests. And, you know, it's not punitive. That's one of the big obstacles here is that there are a lot of people who would like that for themselves who aren't in prison. We, you know, we maybe we aren't providing enough of that to society generally, but it's it gets touchy when you start talking about prisoners. But that idea of kind of facilitating that moment where, as you said, where an identity shift is possible because a different future can be imagined and using that not just as a way of like equipping people, but also as a way of identifying who's. Who's on this desistance continuum? Not everybody is. Anyway, that's a, that's an idea that I've been talking to to Sean about. So, Jeremy, I mean, one of the things uh, that has been on people's mind with regard to what's happening relative to violent crime in America has been the the spike in crime, admittedly from a very low base, but we've seen significant increases in violent crime in our major cities across the country. It doesn't seem to have much of a pattern to it in terms of, you know, people, well, it's the, it's the democratic cities that are having this, you know, Republican governed cities, democratic governed cities, everybody's struggling with it, with this. In your reading of the data, where do you think it's coming from a, and what do you think the right response ought to be to try to restore security in particularly in low income communities where this violence is, is occurring? So let me begin by taking the word you just used and 
emphasizing how important it is to recognize this as a spike. This is a sharp increase. This is not a minor phenomenon. This is not a blip. This is not a uptick. This is a very serious, significant increase that we've seen over the past two years in not just violent crime, but in gun violence and particularly homicides. So we have not seen a similar increase in, in other types of criminal activity. Uh, and I would quibble, however, the use of the words from a low base. Nationally, we've had a, you know, a pretty good run since the, since the early nineties of violent crime coming way down. And by the way, property crime has come down, uh, for, uh, for years before that. Uh, but in, uh, communities of color. Yeah. It's been high. And the most of the increase, if you, uh, look at data, uh, that Pat Sharkey has produced, uh, most of the increase is very disturbingly in the same communities where the uh, level has already been very high. So the communities that are suffering from this spike are uh, black communities, brown communities, poor communities. And that is helping us think about the urgency, I hope, of doing something to bring the uh, levels of uh, gun violence uh, down because it's changing Community dynamics is changing life course for uh, particularly young men. Uh, and, you know, parents are losing their children to gunfire just in, in ways that are very, very, very troubling. So it's a, it's a, it's a uh, challenge for the country of the first order. And to, for some who say, well, it's because of bail reform or it's because of, uh, uh, you know, who's running the city or, um, you know, how do we think about, uh, the uh, this is all because of defund the police movement. Uh, to me, that is all a a really highly unfortunate diversion from the challenge, which is to try to understand what's going on, grapple with the enormity of what's going on, and the the life consequences of this uh, sharp increase in in, uh, in gun violence, and figure out what to do. So the the second part of your question is is what should we do about it? I'd like to think that we had a better understanding of what caused the the increase so that we could figure out what to do. We don't have enough data. We don't have enough good data, uh, particularly at, at a community level in terms of dynamics within communities to really be able to answer that question. This is where our, our way of thinking about uh, data on crime leaves us, you know, just falling short in terms of, of policy responses because we look at things at a macro level, jurisdiction level, not at a street level. Uh, but even with that sort of shortfall in our ability to actually understand what's going on, we should still be very focused on trying to figure out how to intervene. So the intervene, the interventions uh, should be, in my view, both law enforcement interventions, because we have you know pretty good literature on what works in terms of policing interventions. We also have a good research base on what the harms are from certain aggressive policing interventions. We shouldn't do st stop and frisk extensively, for example. We have we know a lot about the harm from over-enforcement in terms of lots of low-level arrests or people going off to prison for too long. So those are all cautions, but we shouldn't abandon the police. My Lord, the police are what are, are our front line here mm -hmm. of, of, of responding. But what has happened over the past, I'd say, 10 years or so, is that our field uh, has developed uh, I'd say credit to lots of organizations that have been at the forefront here and sometimes have not been given the respect that they deserve. But our field has developed a a literature, a suite of community-led interventions that are very promising, and some of them very exciting, actually, in terms of how community capacity can be organized in a different way. So some of them are hospital-based, some of them are the interrupter models, some of them are you know, like the, the Ready Project in Chicago that actually worked to provide economic and work opportunities for, for the young men who are most likely involved in, in the violence. Some of them are uh, family-based. So this suite of programs, interventions, that is not sufficiently evidence-based yet, we as a country, and we hope to do this at Arnold Ventures as well, want, we should invest in building them up as a as a part of the response to gun violence that should be in working hand in hand with the police. So the idea that it's either the police or community-led interventions is a false choice, a very dangerous choice uh, to think that it's one or the other. And there's some uh, sniping across that boundary, which is unfortunate. 
And a smart mayor, I always ask myself, what would a smart mayor do? A smart mayor would have everybody at the table, would put data at the center of the conversation, would ask what works, what doesn't, would have people meeting every day uh, to see what can be done to reduce the the shooting. What do we know about what happened last night? This table would ask itself in neighborhood X uh, and not defer only to the police, not defer only to the uh, to the violence interrupters, but really have people working together because the other thing that we know is a lot of the, the violence is within a small group and it turns to, it, it is often uh, sort of a retaliatory dynamic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what has to be interrupted. That's why the interrupter idea is, is just right. Uh, and what can, what can police do to interrupt that violence? What can uh, community organizations uh, and churches do to interrupt that violence? That's, that's the way to think about it. And do we have some models that, that are promising? Absolutely. Uh, you know, look to Newark. Newark has a very very low low rate of of increase uh, in the uh, in gun shootings over the same time that lots of other people have seen mm-hmm. increase. Look at Dallas, where they're seeing a low level of increase. So, do we have case studies that we should learn from? Uh, absolutely. That's terrific. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, in my, you know, you you talked about Pat Sharkey, and one of the things that struck me about his research and about sort of you know, the more resources that you've got in communities that are providing alternatives to criminal activity, you know, the the lower rates of, of criminal activity yep. that you have going on. And I think that the sudden shutdown um, as a result of the uh, in response to the pandemic yep. really pulled the, the legs out from a lot of people. Um, and I, I keep wondering if that isn't you know, we just haven't had the boots on the ground who could do the interrupting that you're talking about. Well, I, I think the the hypothesis that to me has the most uh, promise to help us understand why we've had this spike in gun violence is precisely that, 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 that the, the and no surprise, that the major event in our in recent years has been the pandemic. To me, the analogy is to the major event in the 80s, which was the introduction of crack cocaine uh, into urban America. So this major event, highly disruptive and highly disruptive of the connectivity within community, uh, you know, youth programs. Communities that are already extremely stressed. And, you know, yeah, young people who are not in school, not in programs who are Mm -hmm. stressed, their families are stressed, the parents having difficulty putting uh, bread on the table, everyone's worries about their health. Status, uh, police officers, their capacity is diminished because there are fewer of them, many of them out for uh, uh, COVID uh, reasons. And they're pr- probably, they're, I'm sure it's true, also uh, hesitant to engage in the way that, that we know the engagement works. You know, talking to young people, that works. Mm-hmm. To sort of yeah. say, what's going on here? So mm-hmm. if, you do, if you do that less, and if the, the social infrastructure that Pat writes about in his, in his book is, has been weakened, why should we be surprised on one level? And then you have this other phenomenon that I don't quite understand, which is the the increased trafficking uh, in guns mm. uh, over the pandemic predates the pandemic, uh, but that that's that makes it a combustible mix. Yeah, well, a lot of people buying guns, that's for sure, and I suppose some portion of those are are winding up yeah. on the on the street. Yeah. So uh, that brings us to criminal justice reform. Additional criminal justice reform initiatives. We had the Second Chance Act. We had the First Step Act, and there was high hopes at the beginning of the Biden administration that we might get another bill, um, and that kind of fell apart. What's your What's your take on what happened? Well, let's let's uh, count our successes here, uh, and I would go back to the First Step Act. That's a major success, continuation of of uh, this uh, trajectory of bipartisan uh, reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's not forget the restoration of funding for uh, right. college uh, programs. Uh, for yep. power. And although it doesn't get much attention, the Biden administration has been very successful at uh, either redirecting existing uh, uh, appropriations or under the, uh, the rescue plan, uh, taking new appropriations that have come forward uh, to make that money available to jurisdictions to uh, do something particularly about, about violence that we just spoke about. So that's all uh, on the positive side. I'll note also that there's some additional money that's come from uh, Congress uh, with uh, support, obviously, from the Biden administration for jurisdictions to uh, support successful reentry uh, for COVID relief. So there's there's still 
activity underway that's mm-hmm. made available by uh, appropriations and some uh, some authorizing legislation. Uh, we've had, however, uh, some setbacks. The uh, George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, we had hopes for that. There was bipartisan discussions uh, that fell by the wayside. Uh, we had uh, uh, hopes that the Build Back Better Act uh, might be the vehicle through which there would be significant funding, $5 billion over 10 years for the uh, community uh, violence uh, intervention work that we just talked about. And that could still happen. I, I'm hopeful about that. But some of those big items, either the uh, ones that were very important uh, from a policy point of view or from a funding point of view and or from a funding point of view, uh, haven't happened. But let's let's keep our eye on uh, the Equal Act. So the Equal Act is now working its way through Congress. It had uh, you know, strong bipartisan support uh, in the House uh, and interesting uh, a team of folks, uh, Hakeem Jeffries and Jim Clyburn and teaming up with Jim Jordan and uh, Louis Gohmert on the Equal Act in the Senate. It, uh, the bill also has uh, seven, at this point, Republican co-sponsors. Uh, and what this would do is equalize between crack and powder cocaine, uh, the sentencing uh, options available for those two offenses, uh, which is an important step towards uh, justice, in my view. So that bipartisan support would undo, uh, I think, one of the significant um, and misguided uh, policy choices we made years ago. So that would be uh, a good outcome. Uh, but I think you're right that right now the idea of a sort of an omnibus federal you know, crime bill like we saw with any of the ones that uh, we've seen over the last 50 years uh, seems unlikely. That could change, and, and, and I hope it will change. And there's, there continues to be interest in criminal justice reform at the federal level, but the current you know, bipartisan uh, divide yeah. uh, makes that uh, I, 60 I, votes to do that is really hard. And that's, uh, and that's where actually my greatest concern was and is, is to the maintenance of the bipartisanship around criminal justice reform, which seems to have eroded some. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but and that's just going to take a lot of effort on everybody's part um, to try to try to keep it alive, because, I mean, it's amazing how quickly people will kind of revert to old habits of, you know, trying to leverage the problem of crime for um, electoral advantage. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I was dismayed by the, by the, the failure of the bill. And I'm, and I'm wondering whether that um, certainly, I think there's a danger there that we could lose some momentum um, in the long haul for the kinds of enduring reforms that need to be made. We're out of time. We're over time. You've been just incredibly generous. I know what your what your calendar, or at least I have a sense for what your calendar is like. Let's just wrap up with what you see coming next. Um, the next for Arnold Ventures and its work in this area, uh, and or next in terms of where you see the the general issue issue of criminal justice reform going. Well, there's a there's a very ambitious and exciting agenda ahead for Arnold Ventures, and I encourage our listeners to go to our website to see what we're working on. It ranges from policing and violence reduction uh, through pretrial justice and prosecution reform to thinking about uh, different approaches to probation and parole and prisons and reentry and fines and fees. We're doing a lot of work, and I'm privileged to be leading a, a team here uh, that's uh, digging deep on some of those issues. What's next in terms of uh, the movement uh, is uh, right now, as you alluded to, we're we're at a, a really tricky time uh, because of the pushback that has uh, been made possible. Let's put it that way by the increase in in uh, the rates of uh, gun violence, and that is being uh, leveraged by people who want to oppose reform, whether it's bail reform or um, prosecution reform or diversion programs or the like in ways that uh, should concern all of us. We're very concerned about it at Arnold Ventures, certainly, because we've we've been uh, you know, deeply invested in those reform activities. But I think if I can look down the road a couple of years from now, I think that the crystal ball here for a moment, I think that the bipartisan coalition will hold. 
I think I agree with you, Brent, that that, that left-right coalition has been really important to get us to where we are today. It's been stretched by more activity on the left and more activity on the right uh, that has uh, uh, sort of elevated those voices. Um, I think and hope uh, that that we can uh, maintain that sort of a strong and large center. Uh, that's important in, in terms of keeping the public engaged in the reform ideas, keeping legislators and elected officials in, in, uh, engaged for, for the reform agenda. Uh, and we have to think long term. So the long-term view that uh, I hold on to, because that's sort of the only way to think about it, I've been doing this for uh, 50 years now, uh, is that we've gone off course as a country. We have ramped up the use of prison as our response to crime uh, fourfold, where the the rate of incarceration is four times higher than it was uh, 50 years ago. We've criminalized activity and behaviors that were not criminalized before and where a better response would be a health or a mental health or a, a uh, off-ramp sort of response in terms of employment programs or diversion programs. We treated young people as adults. We've just done crazy things in this country in the name of crime control. So the public has been sold a bill of goods that that the that if we did all these things, crime would come down. And crime has come down, but not because we did those things. So the challenge for those those of us in the in the movement is to decouple the notion of punishment and punitiveness from the notion of safety, from the mm. end result. So long-term, we have to reverse what Bruce Wesson and I call in our square one uh, context, the era of punitive excess. We have to reverse mm. the use of punishment as our response to misconduct. And that means fewer people in prison, those who are in prison for shorter periods of time, preparing them for the return home through the types of things that we've talked about, uh, and thinking about alternatives that are more effective and reinvesting that saved money in strengthening communities so that we don't have as many people coming into uh, the criminal justice system. That's the long-term vision. But there's another vision I hold on to at the core of this, which is to think very differently about how do we, we respond to those moments when somebody harms another in our society? How do we respond in ways that heal the person who was harmed? We don't pay enough attention to victims, in my view. We don't pay enough, enough attention to trauma. We don't pay enough attention to what people need after they've been at the receiving end of some uh, misconduct. And at that moment, that moment is an opportunity to intervene differently in the lives of the, of the victim, but also the person who, who engaged in the harm, rather than sending them off to prison or through this assembly line we call justice. So to think differently about healing, forgiveness, the human human elements of that interaction that are activated, even if those people don't know each other, mm. in ways that we we take that that conflict, that moment, and and put it into boxes. The victim goes on 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 their own way. The the person who caused the harm goes on their own way. We try to adjudicate whether that was a crime or not. If it was a crime, then we punish that person. I think we've got it all just wrong. <laughs> so we need we need re responses to that moment that recognize human dignity of everybody involved, that think about the police officer who responds or the intervention worker who responds or the pastor or the principal who responds as being a part of that healing process and recognizes that ultimately all people who are engaged in that moment continue to live with each other. And we need a community capacity and a government response that supports that capacity so that they can learn how to come out of that difficult moment as friends if possible, certainly as 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 well off as possible, and as citizens in our society. We have a criminal justice system that, that takes that moment and does very harmful things to everybody, including the government agents who have to adjudicate what happened. So my hope is that sometime we'll sort of get back to basics and ask how do we respond differently. I think that's a really terrific vision. It is obviously a very nuanced and humane understanding of the problem of crime. Uh, and somehow we have to be able to communicate that there is a different way, or at least a different way that needs to be tried uh, in order to um, address the challenges. I mean, I'm really, uh, I'm really struck by this idea that you just articulated about, you know, you have an incident that we call a crime that leaves a mark uh, it leaves a mark on 
the people working to protect the community. It leaves a mark on the victim. It leaves a mark on the families surrounding both the perpetrator and and the victim. And that punishment simply doesn't get by itself, doesn't get to what's needed in order to bring that sense of restoration, resolution, and healing that benefits everyone. That takes a lot of words to explain, but we've got to keep at it. We've got to keep with the being able to articulate clearly an alternative vision for how we can create a more just, a more peaceful um, society that benefits everyone taxpayers who are paying for the systems that are adjudicating all of this, as well as the communities that are that are impacted by crime. So this has been terrific. Jeremy, thank you so much again for your time. Just one last question. If people are interested in following your work, where should they look? They should go to the Arnold Ventures website. We have a terrific website that has coverage of the work we do by by talking about the work that we fund. And that's really up in communities and, and universities. And uh, that's a good way to uh, understand what we're doing. If they want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, but uh, more importantly, if you want to know uh, what I'm uh, thinking about, you can read some of my uh, writings, either Square One website, Power of Parsimony is my favorite recent work, or op-eds uh, at the uh, Arnold Ventures website. I like to be a contributor to the discourse uh, in the country. And uh, there are lots of ways that we can engage and people should be in touch with me if they want to be in touch with me. Uh, We have a wonderful opportunity, notwithstanding recent challenges, to really change the way our democracy thinks about how to reinforce the social contract when that social contract is violated by somebody who harms another and restore communities and strengthen communities and uh, provide opportunities for healing and forgiveness as well as accountability. Jeremy Travis, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brent. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working. <laughs>